0: Part Three, Chapter Nine of *The Gambler*. This Librebox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. *The Gambler* by Catherine Cecil Thurston, Chapter Nine. To the superficial student of Clodagh's character, this development of a phase in her mental growth may present itself as something distasteful, even unworthy. But to the serious student of human nature with its manifold and wonderful complexities it must perforce come clothed in a different guise placed by circumstances in a singularly isolated position springing from a race in whom love of power love of admiration love of love itself are inherent qualities it is not to be wondered at that in the first flush of her realized sovereignty over men she should view the world from a slightly giddy altitude no one grudges her triumphs and her innocent intrigues to the girl in her first season humanity looks on indulgently while she breaks her first lance with the candid joy the pardonable egotism that is bred of youth and incongruous as it may sound clodagh's was the position of the debutante she was comprehending for the first time and comprehending with accumulated emotion the fact that she possessed an individual path in life and with the arrogance of inexperience she sprang to the conclusion that every foot crossing that path should yield her a toll of homage. And now one foot had crossed it without pause, without even a desire to linger. Her cheeks burned under the smart of her hurt vanity as she turned from the little group that surrounded Lady Frances Hope, and allowed Deerhurst to lead her across the salon. Her emotions were many and confused, but one personality occupied her thoughts against the angry expostulations of her reason. By an illogical but very human sequence of impressions, Sir Walter Gore had, in one moment, become the most objectionable and the most interesting person of her acquaintance. As she stepped out upon the balcony, Deerhurst drew forward the low chair that she had occupied the night before, and she sank into it with a little sigh. For the first time, in the glamour of newfound excitement, she felt glad to escape from the crowd and the lights of the salon. For a while her companion made no effort to break the silence that she seemed anxious to preserve. Then at last he changed his position, stepped softly forward, and laid his hand on the back of her chair. "'Is what Bernard tells me true?' he asked. "'Are you really leaving Venice in a week?' She bent her head without looking up. "'But surely we can persuade you.' His voice quickened, then broke off as Clodagh turned to him. "'Does it matter to anyone whether I go or stay?' she asked in a slightly tremulous voice. The only surprise that Deerehurst betrayed was shown in the narrowing of his cold eyes. He studied her penetratingly for a moment, then he spoke again, very quietly. "'Mrs. Milbank,' he said, "'can you ask that question in good faith?' A faint touch of last night's embarrassment wavered across her mind, but this time she swept it defiantly aside. "'Yes, I mean it.' She turned and again looked up into his face. "'And am I to answer in good faith?' She bent her head, still looking at him. "'Then, judging by the one case of which I can confidently speak, yes, distinctly yes.' There was a pause, and Clodagh gave a faint laugh. "'And whose is the one case?' Her voice sounded cool, high even slightly indifferent. It piqued Deerhurst to a further step. He answered her question with another. Mrs. Milbank, he said, have you ever heard of Circe? Again she laughed. My education was extensive, if very intermittent, she said. Yes, I have heard of Circe and her wild beasts. He echoed the laugh in his thin expressive voice. I see the implication, but I would willingly play even wild beasts to your Circe. He bent over her chair. She drew away with a slight sharp movement, but he did not alter his position. Do you know that a man would follow you anywhere? Anywhere? Anywhere. He let his hand glide softly from the back of the chair to her shoulder. At the touch of his fingers she slipped away from him with a noiseless movement and rose to her feet. Then follow me back to the salon, she said in a voice that still sounded high and light. There was a constrained pause, but it was one of short duration. Deerhurst was not the man to be easily taken at a disadvantage. For one instant a glimmering of chagrin showed on his composed face, the next it was gone. He straightened his dignified figure and felt mechanically for his eyeglass. "'Pon my word,' he said, "'I believe you are, Circe. Use your prerogative.' He turned, laughed a little, and indicated the salon with a courtly gesture. Clodagh looked at him. He puzzled and disconcerted her. To one whose innate instinct was a yielding to impulse, his absolute impassivity in face of disconcerting situations was something incomprehensible. And now, as he stepped aside to give her passage, she gave a quick laugh, expressive of both embarrassment and relief, and crossed the balcony with a certain instinctive haste. During their absence the crowd in the salon had increased, the press about the roulette-table had become denser, while at half a dozen card-tables sheltered from the general gathering by large screens of old Italian leatherwork, parties of four were playing bridge. Ignoring these latter groups, Clodagh crossed the room towards the roulette-table and paused upon the outskirts of the crowd that surrounded it. Deerhurst, following her closely, narrowed his eyes with a touch of interest as he saw that, either by intention or accident, she had halted beside Sir Walter Gore. "'Well,' he said in his thin, satirical voice as he gained her side, "'well, shall we combine forces as we did last night? I brought you luck, remember?' She turned upon him almost sharply. "'No,' she said, "'no, I don't play roulette.' At the vehemence of her denial he raised his eyebrows, and Sir Walter Gore looked round. Seeing the speaker an involuntary gleam of surprise crossed his face. Surely you are not so unfashionable as to disapprove of gambling, Mrs. Milbank, he asked. Clodagh raised her eyes, and this time her glance was free from coquetry. I have not been fashionably brought up, she said. Indeed. The surprise, and with it a reluctant interest, deepened in Gore's glance, but his eyes wandered doubtfully over her dress. Invariably quick to follow a train of thought, she gave a short, comprehending laugh oh i know what you are thinking of she cried i don't look as if i belong to the wilds people never understand that dressing is a knack that comes to women and does not really mean anything he smiled amused against his will again she laughed like a child who has been praised oh it's quite true she added i can tell you of dozens of cases but the flow of confidence was suddenly terminated valentine called catching sight of her through the throng of people, had made a hasty way towards her. His finely cut, colorless face was animated, and his dark gray eyes looked excited. "'How do you do? How do you do, Mrs. Milbank?' he exclaimed. "'Please congratulate me. I've had a run of luck. Net at seventy pounds.' Clodagh's lips parted. Seventy pounds?' she said breathlessly, and instinctively she turned to Gore. But Gore's place was empty." At Seracal's approach he had moved unostentatiously away. At the knowledge that he was gone a sense of disappointment fell upon her. She glanced uncertainly at Deerhurst. The old peer, who had been a cynical observer of the little scene, gave a thin laugh. "'Our friend Gore is fearful of contamination,' he said, glancing at his nephew. Seracal laughed. "'Gore,' he said contemptuously. "'Oh, Gore and I never did chum up but where have you been hiding yourself all day? He turned again to Clodagh. We have had dark suspicions that old Barney has been buying up your society with stock exchange tips. Come now, confess. He paused and laughed, looking with intent admiration into her expressive face. And Clodagh, sailing upon the tide of present things, elated by the eager interest of two men, and excited by the grudging interest of a third forgot that for every frail craft such as hers there is an ultimate harbour to be gained, a future to be reckoned with. She lifted her head, met Seracalde's searching glance, and echoed his inconsequent laugh. End of chapter 9 CHAPTER Ten. The next day Clodagh made one of a party to the Lido, and the same night accompanied Lady Frances Hope, Deerhurst, and Sarah called to a theatre but on neither occasion did she meet or even see sir walter gore on the afternoon of the second day however he again appeared upon the scene of her interest and in an unexpected manner the hour was six and she with barnard and milbanke was seated on the hotel terrace chatting desultorily in the warmth of the early evening while they talked a gondola glided up to the hotel steps and in the glow of the waning sun they saw gore step from the boat pause to give some order to the gondolier then mount the stone steps they all three saw him simultaneously clodagh to her own annoyance colored and barnard smiled in his observant quizzical fashion i didn't tell you that gore was coming to see me this afternoon mrs milbanke he said in an undertone i had a fancy that you might run away the flush on clodagh's face deepened run away she exclaimed in angry haste but Barnard rose without replying and went forward to meet his visitor having greeted his host gore turned to clodagh how do you do mrs milbank he said raising his hat then he looked interrogatively at milbank Barnard made a sweeping gesture my dear old friend mr james milbank he said james sir walter gore milbank looked up quickly and the younger man held out his hand with a pleasant touch of cordiality. "'How do you do, sir?' he said. "'Are you making a long stay in Venice?' With a friendly movement he pulled forward one of the wicker chairs and seated himself beside Milbeck. Clodagh, leaning far back in her own long low seat, looked at him curiously. Unconsciously the remembrance of Seracalde's careless manner upon a similar occasion of first introduction recurred to her mind, coupled with the knowledge of Barnard's contemptuous idea of her husband, his fads, and his peculiarities. What could this man see to attract him in a dry archaeologist of twice his age? She found herself waiting intently for his next remark, his next action. "'Are you making a long stay?' he repeated, settling himself in his chair. Milbank, surprised and pleased at the unexpected attention, sat up stiffly in his seat oh no he said no we are leaving in three or four days i am interested in antiquity and should properly speaking be in sicily at the present moment perhaps you have heard of the very remarkable researches that are being carried on there gore smiled no i'm afraid i must confess ignorance i know disgracefully little about the past barnard hearing a dissertation from milbanke interrupted with a laugh "'I'm afraid most of us find the present more alluring.' He cast a swift glance at Clodagh. But Clodagh, still annoyed with him, and with herself, still puzzled by Gore's attitude, lifted her head sharply. "'At least, she said, we can be sure that the present is genuine.' Gore turned and looked at her. "'Are you quite sure of that, Mrs. Milbank?' he asked quietly. "'Don't you think there is trickery and deception in the manufacture of many things besides the antique?' Her glance faltered. "'I have seen a lot of unauthentic relics,' she said with a touch of obstinacy, "'and I a lot of unauthentic life.' He looked at her with a slight smile. The smile stung her unreasonably. "'Some people can never become connoisseurs,' she retorted quickly. Gore laughed, but without offence. "'Not of treasures, perhaps, but with experience and observation, surely anyone can become a judge of men and women.' Clodagh forced herself to smile. "'You disapprove of women?' "'Disapprove? Indeed, no.' But here Barnard interposed with one of his suave gestures. "'He only disapproves of the modern woman, Mrs. Milbank.' Gore turned to him good-humouredly. "'Wrong, Barnard,' he said. "'I admire the modern woman, the truly modern woman. It is the society woman of any period that I lose patience with.' Barnard smiled the present-day woman is very proud of her complex life he said smoothly her big card debts and her little intrigues gore's healthy face turned a shade redder i know he said tersely but to me a woman with no higher ambition than the playing of cards winter and summer afternoon after afternoon is-is pitiable clodagh leant forward perhaps they play cards because they have no real interests he looked at her quickly and why have they no real interest mrs milbanke isn't it because they reject all simple natural wholesome things such women do not know the meaning of the word home they do not want a home or home life as the women of the last generation understood it ah there you touch bottom my dear gore there you are in your depths again barnard gave one of his smooth tactful laughs this young man has a great pull over us mrs milbanke when he compares the present generation with the past at the suave words gore made a slightly embarrassed gesture and looked instinctively towards Milbanke. forgive my tirade sir he said a little confusedly mr barnard is right i have rather a high ideal of womanhood i am possessed of a a very remarkable mother a mother clodagh looked round impulsively oh tell me what she is like with a certain spontaneity gore turned to respond to her question but before his eyes met hers their glance was intercepted by a shrewd amused inquiring look from barnard the effect of the look was strange his emotion so suddenly aroused died suddenly his face became passive even a little cold he straightened his shoulders and gave the restrained self-conscious laugh that the englishman resorts to when he feels that his sentiments have entrapped him oh you must not ask me what my mother is like mrs milbank he said i could not give you an unbiased opinion as it is i have been wasting your time unpardonably barnard do you think mrs milbank will excuse you for 10 minutes barnard rose slowly do not put me to the pain of saying yes he exclaimed let me imagine that i am tearing myself away from mrs milbank's express desire au revoir mrs milbank au revoir james he nodded and sauntered off in the direction of the hotel door a moment later gore shook hands silently with clodagh and her husband and moved away in the same direction as he disappeared into the hotel milbanke folded his newspaper with interested haste what a well-mannered young man he said who is he what is his name clodagh was sitting very still her hands clasped in her lap her eyes fixed upon some distant object gore she said suddenly gore sir walter gore gore milbanke repeated the name as though it pleased him a fine young fellow very unlike the majority of young men of the present day clodagh said nothing don't you agree with me my dear as if by an effort she recalled her wondering gaze turned her head slowly and looked at her husband he-he certainly seems unlike other people she admitted in a low voice after this rejoinder there was silence clodagh her brows drawn together in a perplexed frown relapsed into her former absorbed contemplation while milbanke having changed his position once or twice shook out the sheets of his newspaper and buried himself in the lengthy report of a scientific meeting but scarcely had he reached the end of his first paragraph than a large shadow fell across the page and looking up quickly he saw the ponderous figure of Mr. Angelo Toombs. At the sight of his hero he started, colored with pleasure, and rose hastily. Mr. Toombs, he exclaimed, Clodagh, my dear, here is Mr. Toombs. Clodagh turned without enthusiasm and looked at the loose figure and unkempt hair of the scientist. I do not think you and my—my wife had met Mr. Toombs. Milbank broke in with a nervous attempt at geniality. Mr. Toombs bowed. "'No, but I have many times seen Mrs. Milbank,' he said ponderously. Clodagh bent her head, noting with the fastidious intolerance of youth that his clothes were baggy and his hands unclean. Milbank gave a nervous conciliatory laugh. "'I—I I have noticed that great men are always observant,' he said jocularly. Mr. Toome smiled. "'That is scarcely a compliment to Mrs. Milbank,' he interposed consciously. Clodagh looked up and met his eyes." "'I don't wish to be paid compliments, Mr. Tomes,' she said. "'Please don't try to think of any. "'Did you come to take my husband out?' Mr. Tomes stammered, visibly crestfallen. "'Well,' he began, "'there is a certain archway in one of the smaller churches which I think Mr. Milbank ought to see. "'But as an archway is not too weighty for a lady's consideration, "'it struck me—it occurred to me—but Clodagh cut him short.' "'Oh, Mr. Toombs, I'm much too frivolous even for archways. Don't take me into your calculations. I should only spoil them. Of course it's very kind of you,' she added with tardy remorse. "'But the experiment would be a failure. Ask my husband.' Milbank looked distressed. "'Oh, my dear,' he began. But Clodagh's nerves were jarred. "'I know,' she broke in. "'I know it's awfully kind of Mr. Toombs. But I couldn't go to see an archway to-day. I couldn't. I really, really couldn't.' Mr. Toombs relapsed into a state of pompous offense. Milbank looked from one to the other in nervous misery. "'Certainly not, certainly not, my dear,' he agreed. "'You are tired. You have been doing too much.' He peered at her through the softly falling twilight with a look of helpless concern. She felt rather than saw the look, and that sensitive dread of being rendered conspicuous that attacks us all in early life caused her to shrink into herself." nonsense she said a little coldly i am perfectly well please go and see mr Toome's archway i don't mind being left alone i would like to be left alone milbanke stirred uneasily of course my dear if you wish it he murmured mr Toome's, shall we are you ready he waved his hand towards the canal mr Toome's drew his loose limbs together and bowed formally to clodagh certainly if you wish it mr milbanke he said stiffly and walked off along the terrace. Milbank did not follow him at once. He stood looking at his wife in pained uncertainty. Clodagh, my dear, he began at last, if there is anything I can do. But Clodagh turned away. No, she said almost inaudibly. No, there is nothing. I'd like to be alone. I want to be alone. And Milbank, perplexed, embarrassed, vaguely unhappy, turned slowly and walked across the terrace after his scientific friend clodagh waited until the last sound of mr toome's loud rolling voice had melted into the distance with the departure of his gondola then with a stiff tired movement she rose walked in her own turn across the terrace and leaning upon the stone parapet gazed out into the purple twilight as she had gazed on the evening of her first arrival how long ago how infinitely far away that first arrival seemed to her with the capacity for the assimilation of new emotions that belongs to all her race she had lived more keenly during the last three days than during the preceding four years to one of her temperament life is not a matter of time but of experience at eighteen she had been a child on her twenty-second birthday she had been a girl and now, when that birthday was passed by but a few months, she was conscious of the stirring of her womanhood, roused into swift activity by the first approach of the world with its men and women, its laxities and prejudices, its infinite potentialities for good or evil. Some vague foreshadowing of this idea was casting itself across her mind when the thread of her musings was suddenly broken by a quick step. "'Sounding across the deserted terrace and with a slight involuntary movement, "'she straightened herself and brought her hands together upon the cold surface of the parapet. "'Sir Walter Gore had parted with Barnard in the hall of the hotel, "'and now he crossed the terrace quickly, conscious of the last falling twilight. "'He was close to the flight of stone steps that led to the water "'before the flutter of Clodagh's light dress caught his preoccupied attention. "'Seeing her he paused and raised his hat you look very mysterious mrs milbanke he said has your husband gone indoors clodagh felt herself color. unreasonably and seemingly inexplicably the motion of milbanke's name jarred upon her my husband has gone to see an archway in one of the churches she said with a tinge of sharpness caught by the inflection of her voice gore looked at her more closely through the gathering dust and you do not share his taste for the antique." She turned towards him, her eyes alight with a sharp cold brightness. "'I hate the antique,' she said with sudden vehemence. Almost against his will, Gore looked at her again. "'And yet you come from Ireland. Isn't everything there very old?' For an instant she looked away across the darkening waters, then her glance flashed back to his. "'Yes, old,' she said passionately, "'but so naturally old that its age is not thrust upon you.' "'Where I come from, there is a ruined chapel on the edge of a cliff that dates from the fourth century, and at the present day the peasants pray there, just as their ancestors prayed centuries and centuries ago. They don't stare at it and read about it and write about it like the antiquarians do. They pray there. The chapel isn't a curiosity to them. It's a part of their lives.' Gore was silent, an unconquerable surprise a reluctant fascination held him chained forgetful of the gathering darkness and of the gondola that awaited him at the foot of the steps as he stood hesitatingly clodagh spoke again don't you believe that things should be lived not merely looked at she asked her voice low and tense almost unconsciously the desire to interest this man to win his attention to compel him to share her opinions had sprung into her mind gore answered her with direct no, he said, all things cannot be lived. His voice was quiet and controlled. The pose of his body, the look in his eyes, all suggested a tempered strength, a curbed vitality. The desire to dominate him rose higher, overshadowing every other sensation in Clodagh's brain. She stepped nearer to him, her hand resting on the stone balustrade, her body bending forward. Don't you think that when life is so very short "'we are justified in taking all we can, when we can?' "'Her warm lips were parted, her eyes shone with an added light. "'She was walking on the edge of an abyss with the ardor of one whose gaze is fixed upon the sun. "'But Gore, seeing only the abyss, girded on his armor. "'No,' he said slowly and deliberately. "'No, that has never been my standpoint. "'Then you refuse the good things of life when they come your way?' "'Good is a very elastic word.' He was fencing, and she realized it. With a subtle change of tone she made a fresh essay. "'Isn't the meaning of every word merely a matter of inflection?' He hesitated. "'I—I I suppose so,' he admitted guardedly. She smiled suddenly, looking up into his face. "'Then to me the word good means all that is warm and light and happy, and to you it means something cold or unattainable?' Indeed, no, you have made a wrong deduction. Well, what does it mean to you? Mean? I i am not sure that I can tell you. Perhaps you have not found the meaning. Perhaps not. But you are seeking for it? He laughed a little constrainedly. I may be, unconsciously. Again she averted her eyes and turned towards the mysterious canal. Now I understand one thing, she said in a soft, slow voice. What is that? gore was curious despite himself why they call you sir galahad there was a moment of silence his face flushed then turned cold indeed he said stiffly and if it is not indiscreet may i ask who calls me sir galahad at the tone of his voice clodagh wheeled round didn't you know she asked i thought-oh i was sure you knew he laughed no he said with elaborate indifference no to whom am I indebted for the name?' But his companion was silent. Acutely conscious of having struck a wrong note, she felt angry with herself. "'Angry with him. Who gave me the name?' he asked again. "'I had better not say. I thought you knew of it. Then I am at liberty to guess. It was Lord Deerhurst.' His tone was curt, even contemptuous. Clodagh flushed. It seemed as if by a subtle insinuation he had scorned her. "'And if it was Lord Deerhurst?' she asked sharply. Gore made an exclamation of contempt. "'You dislike Lord Deerhurst.' He shrugged his shoulders. "'You dislike Lord Deerhurst.' She was persistent, remembering keenly and uncomfortably the favor she had shown the old peer in his presence the night before. Gore gave a short indifferent laugh, and the sound galled her. "'Lord Deerhurst is a friend of mine,' she said unwisely. He bent his head with a stiff movement. "'If I have transgressed,' he said, "'please forgive me. "'I have already trespassed on your time. "'Good-bye. "'Perhaps we shall meet later at the Palazzo Ugaccini.' His voice was cold and very reserved. The blood beat hotly and uncomfortably in Clodagh's veins, but she raised her head and answered in a voice as indifferent as his own, Goodbye. "'It is quite possible that you may see me at the Palazzo Ugaccini, "'but I can't promise more.' Gathering up her light skirt she turned and walked across the terrace to the door of the hotel Gore stood and watched her until the last gleam of her dress was lost in the lighted hall then slowly thoughtfully almost reluctantly he began his descent of the steps End of chapter ten chapter eleven clodagh's mood was inexplicable even to herself as she entered the hotel ran upstairs to her own room and began to dress for dinner she changed her dress with an almost feverish haste giving herself no time for thought and then scarcely waiting to take a final look into the mirror left the room and hurried down into the hall there she encountered barnard i have just been speaking to your husband he said greeting her with a smile he has been lured into attending some secret conclave of italian scientists he asked me to make his excuses to you Clodagh's glance fell. Oh, she said with a curious little inflection of the voice. Of course he knew that you were going out tonight. Oh yes, of course. She kept her lashes lowered. Barnard smiled. Mrs. Milbank, he exclaimed in a cheerful voice. Suppose we have a gay evening. Lord Deerhurst has asked me to dine with him, and Sarah called at the Abadi. Let's form an even party. The old man will be absolutely charmed, and you have never dined at a restaurant. "'Say I may arrange it.' For a moment longer Clodagh studied the ground. Then very quickly she raised her eyes, and in their depths Barnard read a new expression. "'After all,' she said tentatively, "'why shouldn't we take what comes our way?' He extended his hands. "'Why, indeed, let me spread the good news.' Again she let her lashes droop. "'Very well,' she said, "'very well. Say that I want to enjoy myself.' the dignified and placid serenity of venice had been intruded upon that season by the establishment of a fashionable dining-place which under the name of the abati restaurant had taken up its position in a beautiful old house on one of the narrower waterways its distance from clodagh's hotel was short and the journey thither taken in lord deerehurst's gondola in company with the old peer serracauld and barnard occupied but a few minutes Clodagh's first impression on gliding up the still dark waterway and stepping out upon the time-worn garden steps was one of delight. As she stood for a moment in the shadow of the ancient wall above which the tree-tops rose casting black reflections into the water that ran beneath them she was conscious of the subtle touch of the warm night wind upon her face of the subtle poetry in the scent of unseen flowers of the subtle invitation conveyed by the long row of lighted windows seen through a screen of magnolias. She had momentarily forgotten her companions when Deerehurst, the last to leave the gondola, stepped softly to her side. "'This appeals to you?' he said. She started slightly at his unexpected nearness. Then, with a quick impetuosity, she responded to his questions. "'I think it is exquisite,' she said. The light through the trees suggests such wonderful, mysterious things. He smiled under cover of the darkness. It suggests an enchanting banquet. Let us find the presiding genius. He laid his fingers lightly on her arm and guided her up the long, dim garden. Followed by Sarah, called and Barnard, they traversed the shadowy pathways and emerged upon an open space of lawn that fronted the house. Three or four of the private rooms were already occupied and with the faint streams of light that poured from their open windows came the pleasant murmuring of talk and laughter. As the little party stepped into the radius of this light a stately personage came forward deferentially, and, recognizing Deerehurst, made a profound bow. The old nobleman nodded amiably as to an acquaintance of long-standing, and, drawing the man aside, addressed him in French. The explanation was brief, and almost at once deerehurst turned back to his companions come mrs milbanke he said our friend a proves amenable to persuasion he will give us his prettiest room though we are unexpected guests clodagh stepped forward with eager curiosity i never thought a restaurant could be like this she said very few of them are mrs milbanke murmured barnard close behind her the usual restaurant is an ostentatious place of white enamel palms and lights where a hundred tongues are vainly endeavoring to drown a band. This little corner will scarcely outlive another season. It's too perfect, too quiet to find favor with the crowd. It was opened under the patronage, rather, at the suggestion, of Prince Munaf, a Sybarite millionaire temporarily out of sorts with Paris. But now Paris smiles once more. Munaf has wearied of Venice, and poor Abadi begins to tremble clodagh looked round but could anything so exquisite be a failure easily my dear lady people like to eat their expensive dinners where others can comment on their extravagance it's a very vulgar world the three men laughed and clodagh slightly distressed slightly puzzled stepped through the wide hall to the room that deerehurst indicated it was a small chamber long and narrow in shape the walls were paneled in faded brocade and the lights were shrouded in silk of some soft hue the floor was covered with a carpet in which wreathed roses formed the chief design and the furniture consisted of one oval table four beautiful old chairs and a couple of ancient french mirrors as deerehurst stepped forward to relieve clodagh of her cloak four waiters entered noiselessly and almost immediately dinner was served it was a dinner such as prince minoff would have delighted in there was nothing tedious, nothing monotonous in the six or seven courses that comprised its menu. Each stimulated and gratified the appetite without a hint of satiety. It was an Epicurean feast, and it was interesting to study the varying ways in which the guests responded to its appeal. Barnard, placid man of the world, indulgent connoisseur of all the luxuries, openly lingered over the delights of the meal. Serracauld ate quickly and almost greedily as many men of slight build and thin sensual faces do eat, Deerhurst alone toyed with his food, giving serious attention to nothing beyond the dry toast with which he was kept supplied, while Clodagh, young enough and healthy enough to have an appetite that needed no tempting, frankly enjoyed her dinner without at all comprehending its excellence. During the first portion of the meal conversation was fitful and impersonal but as the waiters left the table to carry in one of the last dishes the tone of the intercourse underwent a change Deerhurst turned to clodagh with a sudden gesture of concern and intimacy i see you do not endorse my choice of wine he said in a gently solicitous voice she looked up with slight confusion then looked down at her untouched glass in which the champagne bubbles were rapidly subsiding i-i never drink champagne she said a little diffidently "'Oh, Mrs. Milbank, and my poor uncle has been sacking the Abati cellars for this particular vintage!' Serracauld glanced up quickly and almost reproachfully. Barnard laughed as he blissfully drained his own glass. "'You are very unkind, Mrs. Milbank,' he murmured. "'You make one feel such a deplorable worldling.' But Deerehurst looked round towards a waiter who was re-entering the room. "'Bring this lady another glass and some more champagne,' he said clodagh turned to him sharply and apprehensively but he touched her wrist with his fingertips. please he said in his thin high-bred voice please i want you to taste this wine i generally have some difficulty in getting it outside my own house his pale far-seeing eyes rested on her face and it seemed to her excited fancy that their glance supplemented his words that as plainly as eyes could speak they added the suggestion that some day she might honour that house with her presence. The idea confused her. She turned away from him in slight uneasiness, and at the same moment one of the waiters filled her long Venetian glass with a light golden wine. To please me, Deerhurst murmured again, to please me. She looked round, confused and still embarrassed, gave one unsteady yielding laugh, then lifted the glass. If, if I must, she said deprecatingly barnard and serracauld smiled and deerehurst raised his own glass to the next occasion upon which you consent to be my guest he said with a profound and impressive bow on the surface this incident seems scarcely worth recording yet for clodagh it marked an epoch an epoch not evolved through yielding to her host's persuasions not evolved through drinking a single glass of unfamiliar wine but evolved through the fact that one item in the sum of her prejudices had gone down before that potent fetish the dread of appearing conspicuous with her action a fleeting shadow of self-distrust fell across her mind but she swept it aside as she had previously swept the memory of her interview with gore deep within her lay the specious knowledge that for her this bright existence was only transitory that somewhere behind the lights and music and laughter lay her own individual groove to which she must return like a modern cinderella when the enchanted interlude of brilliant days was ended and in this knowledge lay the secret of her greed for joy certain of the monotony to come she caught passionately at every proffered pleasure ten o'clock had struck before the little party left the restaurant and although she had drunk no more champagne and had refused the liquors that had been served with coffee, her eyes were excitedly bright as she stepped from the gondola at the steps of the Palazzo Ugicini. Mounting the marble stairs with Deerehurst close behind her, she was filled with an exhilarating sense of confidence in herself, of defiance towards the world at large. The memory of the afternoon when she had stood on the dark terrace and listened to Gore's contemptuous voice had left her, or remained only as a spur to her enthusiasm. The animation, the zest for pleasure, was plainly visible in her eyes as she entered the salon and went forward towards her hostess, and Lady Frances Hope, looking round at sound of her guests' names, saw this peculiar expression with a stirring of curiosity. "'Where have you all been?' she asked as she took Clodagh's hand. Barnard laughed. "'We are shocking truants,' he said gaily. "'We have been dining at the Abadi.' She looked at him quickly. "'All four of you?' she asked shrewdly. He smiled. "'You have a suspicious mind, Francis. Yes, all four of us.' Lady Frances laughed. "'No,' she said, "'I never harbor suspicions. It is a Mrs. Milbank's air of having just discovered some delicious secret that is always prompting me to curiosity. How do you manage to look so triumphant?' She turned again to Clodagh with a long puzzled glance. "'I wish you would impart the secret.' Clodagh's bright eyes met hers. My father used to say that the secret of happiness is never to look beyond the present hour. A philosopher, murmured Deerhurst, I should say a bold man. Barnard looked from the old nobleman to his hostess, but almost as he spoke the name of Sir Walter Gore was announced, and Lady Frances looked sharply towards the door. With a quiet, unembarrassed bearing, Gore crossed the salon. As he approached the little group, lady frances stepped towards him with outstretched hands how nice of you she said softly i began to fear you had forgotten about to-night he took her hand calmly but i had promised to come he said simply and at the words his eyes turned involuntarily towards clodagh good evening mrs milbanke he added in the same level voice at his glance and his words clodagh's expression changed The vague excitement of the past hours seemed suddenly to focus itself. She realized abruptly that she had not yet vindicated her right to the joy of life. With exaggerated difference, she bent her head in acknowledgment of his greeting, and almost immediately turned to Deerhurst. "Lord Deerhurst," she said very softly and distinctly, "I want you to do me a favor tonight. I want you to teach me to play roulette." It was her declaration of war the moment towards which she had unconsciously been tending ever since the interview of the afternoon she knew it instantly the words had left her lips knew it by the quick surprise in barnard's eyes the sharp curiosity in lady france's hopes the veiled triumph in deerehurst and the cold disapprobation in sir walter gore's without another glance she turned away and walked slowly forward across the salon to where a couple of dozen people were grouped about the roulette table as she moved deliberately forward many heads were turned in her direction, but she was heedless and almost unobservant of the interest she evoked. Her heart was beating fast, she was rejoicing recklessly in her vindicated independence. Deerhurst overtook her as she halted by the roulette-table, and she was conscious of his presence without looking round. "'Will you stake for me?' she said in a quick undertone. "'You were lucky the other night. He stepped forward, smiling with a cold touch of wisdom, and took the coin she handed to him. "'What? A convert!' cried Luart, who was again officiating at the game. "'Luck to you, Mrs. Milbank!' He gave a pleasant laugh as her coin touched the table, and a moment later set the ball spinning. Clodagh waited, holding her breath. The ball slackened speed, hesitated over the gaily painted board, and finally dropped into its place there was a general laugh of excitement. The little crowd pressed closer to the table, and she saw her coin swept into Luard's hands. The incident was eventful. Quite suddenly the color leaped into her face and her eyes blazed. In total unconsciousness of self she stepped forward to the table. Deerehurst, closely watchful of her, moved to her side. "'Shall I stake again?' he asked in a whisper, but she did not turn her head no no she cried i'll stake for myself her voice sounded distant and absorbed it seemed in that brief moment that she had forgotten her companion and herself thrice she staked and thrice lost but the losses whetted her desires she played boldly with a certain reckless grace born of complete unconsciousness at last fortune favoured her and she won deerehurst still standing close beside her saw the expression of her face saw the careless the almost inconsequent air with which she accepted her spoils and noting both he touched her arm you are a true gambler he said very softly you care nothing for gain or loss you play for the play's sake and clodagh with her mind absorbed and her eyes on the roulette board gave a quick high-pitched unthinking laugh chapter eleven chapter twelve at nine o'clock on the night following her first venture into the world of gambling clodagh was again standing by the roulette table in lady frances hope's salon she had been playing for two hours with luck persistently against her but no one who had chanced to glance at her eager excited face would have imagined even for a moment that the collection of coins in her gold purse was dwindling and not increasing dearhurst had been correct in his deductions she played for the play's sake the losing game the hazardous game was the one which appealed to and absorbed her the savour of risk stimulated her the faint sense of danger lifted her to an enchanted realm and on this night she made an unconsciously picturesque figure as she stood fascinated by the chances of the play her face flushed her eyes intensely bright her fingers restlessly eager to make their stakes "'Round about her was gathered a little group of interested and admiring men—Deerhurst, Luard, Seracolt, and a couple of young Americans who had come to Venice with introductions to Lady Frances Hope. But on none of them did she bestow more than a preoccupied attention. She permitted them to stand beside her. She laughed softly at their compliments and their jests. But her eyes and her thoughts were unmistakably for the painted board over which Barnard was presiding.' Another half-dozen rounds of the game were played, then suddenly she turned away from the table with a quick laugh. "'The end,' she said to Serracauld, who was standing nearest to her, and with a quick gesture she held up the gold-netted purse, now limp and empty. With an eager movement he stepped forward. "'Let me be useful,' he whispered quickly. "'Or me. I represent your husband, you know.' Barnard leant across the roulette table. "'Oh, come, Barney, I spoke first but Clodagh looked smilingly from one to the other, and shook her head. "'No, no,' she said hastily, "'I—I I never borrow money.' Seracal looked obviously disappointed. "'Nonsense, Mrs. Milbank,' he began. But Deerehurst intervened. "'If Mrs. Milbank does not wish it, Valentine, he murmured soothingly, "'Mrs. Milbank, let me take you out of temptation.' He bowed to Clodagh, and courteously made a passage for her through the crowd that surrounded them if any cynical remembrance of her first vehement repudiation of the suggestion that she should gamble rose now to confute her newer denial no shadow of it was visible in his face as they freed themselves from the group of players they paused simultaneously and looked for a moment round the large cool salon about which the elder or more serious of the assembly were scattered for conversation or cards neither spoke but after a moment's wait Deerhurst turned his pale eyes in the direction of the open windows and by the faintest lifting of his eyebrows conveyed a question. Clodagh laughed, then silently bent her head, and a moment later they moved forward together across the polished floor. As they passed one of the many groups of statuary that brightened the more shadowed portion of the room she caught a glimpse of her hostess once again in conversation with Sir Walter Gore, and she was conscious in that fleeting moment of Gore's clear, reflective eyes resting on her in a quick regard. With a swift, almost defiant movement she lifted her head and turned ostentatiously to Deerhurst. "'Is it to be philosophy to-night?' she asked in a low, soft voice. He paused and looked at her, his cold, pale eyes slow and searching in their regard. "'Not to-night, Circe,' he said almost below his breath. Clodagh coloured, gave another quick excited laugh, and moving past him stepped through one of the open windows. Gaining the balcony she did not as usual drop into one of the deep lounge chairs, but moving forward stood by the iron railing and looked down upon the quiet canal. The night was exceptionally clear, even for Italy. Every star was reflected in the smooth dark waters, while over the opposite places a crescent moon hung like a slender reaping hook extended from heaven to garner some mystic harvest. For a moment Deerehurst hesitated to disturb her, but at last, waving his scruples, he went softly forward and stood beside her. "'Are you offended?' he asked in a very low voice. "'No.' Her answer came almost absently, her eyes were fixed upon the moon. "'Then sad.' "'I don't know. Perhaps.' He drew a little nearer. "'And why sad?' She gave a quick sigh, "'and turned from the glories of the night. "'I have only two days more in Venice. "'Isn't that reason for being sad?' "'But why leave Venice?' "'My husband is leaving.' "'He smiled faintly. "'And is he such a tyrant that you must go where he goes?' "'She laughed involuntarily. "'A tyrant,' she said. "'Oh, no, I can scarcely say he is a tyrant. "'Then why do you go with him?' "'She looked round for a moment, "'then her eyes returned to the pageant of the sky.' why does one do anything she said suddenly in a changed voice with a quick movement deerehurst leant forward over the railing and looked into her face usually we do things because we must he said softly but compulsion is not always disagreeable sometimes we are compelled to action by our own desires clodagh conscious of his close regard felt her breath come a little quicker but she did not change her position she did not cease to study the sky. She knew that his arm was all but touching hers, she was sensitive to the faint and costly perfume that emanated from his clothes, but she felt these things vaguely, impersonally, as items in a drama unconnected with herself. When his next words came it was curiosity rather than dread that stirred in her mind. "'It is my desires that are forcing me to speak now, the desire to see you again after you leave Venice the desire to see more of you than a mere acquaintances, to be something more than a mere friend. Clodagh still looked intently at the stars, but unconsciously her lips parted. Why? she asked below her breath, and it seemed to her that the word was not spoken by her, but by someone else. With an eager gesture Deerehurst extended his hand and his long pale fingers closed over her own then out across the darkness and the silence of the balcony floated the strong decisive voice of lady frances hope lord deerehurst it called lord deerehurst so sorry but rose wants you to give an expert opinion upon one point in a game of bridge it won't take two minutes the voice faded away as its owner moved back into the room at the sound of his name deerehurst had drawn himself erect now bending forward silently and swiftly he lifted the hand he was still holding and kissed it vehemently the next moment he had crossed the balcony and entered the salon left alone clodagh stood motionless with a vivid physical consciousness she could still feel the pressure of his cold lips upon her hand but her mental sensations were benumbed that something had occurred she dimly realized that some point some climax had been reached she was vaguely aware. But what its personal bearing upon her own life might be she made no attempt to guess. With a dazed mind she gazed out across the quiet canal, striving to marshal her ideas. For several seconds she stood in this state of mental confusion. Then, with disconcerting suddenness, a new incident obtruded itself upon her mind, With a violent start she became conscious that someone had passed through the open window and was coming towards her across the balcony. She turned sharply, but as she did so her fingers slipped from the railing and all thought of Deerehurst's kiss was banished from her mind. With a sense of acute surprise she recognized the figure of Sir Walter Gore. Taking no notice of her dismayed silence, he came quietly forward. "'Good evening, Mrs. Milbank,' he said. "'Have you been enjoying yourself?' With a certain vague confusion she met his gaze. "'Yes,' she answered, "'I—I I suppose so.' There was a short silence, and Gore, moving to the balcony railing, rested his arm upon it. "'It is getting late,' he said. "'Time for all of us to be thinking of our hotels.' Again she looked at him in faint bewilderment. "'Yes, I—I I suppose so,' she said once more. Another pause succeeded her halting words. Then, with a gesture of decision, Gore stood upright, bringing his glance back to her face. "'Mrs. Milbank,' he said suddenly, "'let me take you home. I have a gondola waiting at the steps.' The words were so totally unexpected that Clodagh remained mute, and leaning forward looked down into the heavy shadows cast by the ancient palace. There was a strange sensation of triumph in this unlooked-for moment, in this sudden capitulation of a man who had previously ignored her a sensation before which all lesser things deerehurst's passion serracauld's ardor barnard's friendship became meaningless and vague but gore guessing nothing from her bent head glanced behind him towards the salon well he said may i be your escort under cover of the dusk clodagh smiled mr barnard generally takes me home involuntarily gore's figure stiffened but she added in a low quick whisper i-i would very much rather go back with you under many conditions the words would have seemed bold but the manner in which she uttered them disarmed criticism gore's face relaxed then let us make our escape he said lady frances is settling a bridge dispute and quite a dozen people have slipped away in the last ten minutes no one will question which of them has taken you home and clodagh gave a short light laugh of sudden pleasure the small conspiracy made gore so much more human drew them so much closer together than they had been before yes yes she said eagerly and i am lunching with lady frances to-morrow i can explain then yes quite so now if you are ready he moved to the window very quietly they re-entered the salon and a flush crossed clodagh's face as she saw deerehurst bending over a card-table with the nearest approach to boredom and impatience she had ever known him to evince her heart already beating to the thought of her new conquest gave an added leap at this silent evidence of her power in the corridor outside the salon gore took her cloak from the servant and himself wrapped it about her as they descended the stairs then passing to the flight of worn steps that led to the water he signaled to a waiting gondolier. Mrs. Milbank, he said as he offered her his hand, I am going to make a strange request. I want to talk to you for half an hour before taking you home. Will you give me leave to make a tour of the canals? He spoke very quietly and in a tone difficult to construe. At his curious appeal her heart gave another quick excited throb though instinctively she realized that neither Deerhurst, Sarah called, nor Barnard would have proposed a midnight excursion in quite his voice or manner. But the very mode of the request enhanced its charm. She looked up into his face as she laid her hand in his. "'I give you leave,' she said gently. He met her glance but almost immediately averted his eyes, and as he handed her to the seat he turned swiftly to the gondolier, addressing him in italian the colloquy lasted but a few seconds and at its conclusion the boat shot silently out into the canal this man does not understand a word of english he said as he dropped into his place by clodagh's side again his words were peculiarly suggestive and again his tone was curiously frank why should he suggest that their conversation was unintelligible and suggest it in so impersonal a tone she leant back in her cushioned seat and let her eyelids droop. Her mind was full of puzzling and delightful thoughts. Never had she tasted the mystery of Venice as she tasted it to-night. Every passing breath of wind, every scent blown from the dark and silent gardens, every distant laugh or broken word was alive with unguessed meanings. The feverish excitement of the past week seemed to fall away. This was romance." this drifting with an inscrutable companion through an unfathomable night her eyes closed she lay almost motionless filled with an aimless vague delight all creation with all creation's limitless possibilities lay in the warm darkness that enveloped her then with the instinct of senses newly and sharply astir she became conscious that gore was watching her with a thrill of expectancy and anticipation she opened her eyes there is something very curious something subtle and almost intimate in the opening of one's eyes upon the steady scrutiny of another as clodagh raised her lids her glance encountered gore's but on the instant that their eyes met her joy in the moment her exultant triumph was suddenly killed for the look that she surprised was not the look she had anticipated it was interested It was attentive, it was grave, but it held neither subjugation nor passion. As her brain woke to this realization she involuntarily raised herself in the cushioned seat. At the same moment her companion leant slightly forward. "'Mrs. Milbank,' he said quickly, "'I have been watching you and thinking about you ever since I came to Venice, and at last I have decided that I must tell you what my thoughts have been.' i am not very old perhaps i have no right to speak but a man sees a good deal of life even if he wants to keep his eyes shut and i have seen a great many people throw away their chances take the false and refuse the true i have seen some men do it and i have seen many women many many women he paused but he did not look at her it is a common everyday occurrence so common that one generally looks on at it with indifference but sometimes just sometimes one stops to think one feels the great great pity of it he paused again looking fixedly down at the strip of carpet beneath their feet clodagh glanced at him a swift searching almost surreptitious look there are times when one stops to think he raised his head and looked at clodagh sitting erect and pale her large eyes wide open, her hands clasped in her lap. "'There are times when it seems cruel, when it seems a sacrilege to see a girl going down the easy road of lost illusions and callous sentiments. I know this sounds incomprehensible, sounds impertinent, but I cannot help myself. I must tell you what no one else will tell you. I must put out my hand.' He paused, but Clodagh did not speak you are very young you are very high-spirited you-you are very attractive and the world is full of people ready waiting to take advantage of your youth your high spirits your attractiveness you are not fit for this society for this set that you have drifted into this set isn't it your own set at last clodagh's lips parted he made an impatient gesture a man has many sets her pale face flushed suddenly. "'I don't think I understand,' she said. "'No, but I am trying to make you understand. I am not disparaging Lady Frances Hope or her social standing. She is a charming woman, a clever woman, but she is a woman of today. Her pleasures, her ambitions, her friends—' Clodagh lifted her head. "'Her friends,' she said faintly, "'are not the friends for you.' for any inexperienced girl. Take them one by one. There is Sarah called, indolent, worthless, vicious. Barnard, decent enough as a man's friend, and as honest as his clients permit him to be, but no proper guide for a girl like you. Deerehurst. But Clodagh checked him. Lord Deerehurst. what about Lord Deerehurst? Her voice was high and strained. Gore made a gesture of contempt. Deerehurst. he began hotly then suddenly his tone changed mrs milbank he said earnestly whatever you may say whatever you may do i cannot believe that in your heart you are in sympathy with these people whose one object in life is to gamble to gamble with honour money emotion anything everything that has the savour of risk and the possibility of gain you have no justification for belonging to these people you have the good things of life the things many women are forced to steal position a home a good husband at the last word clodagh started violently and with a quick impulsive movement gore turned to her afresh you are intoxicated with life or what seems to you to be life you are forgetting realities i have seen your husband he is an honest simple trustworthy man who loves you The tone of his voice came to Clodagh with great distinctiveness. It seemed the only living thing in a world that had suddenly become dead. While she had been sitting rigid and erect in the stern of the gondola, everything had altered to her mental vision. Everything had undergone a fundamental change. The purple twilight, the mysterious night scents, the breezes blown in from the lagoon had become intangible, meaningless things. She was conscious of nothing but Gore's clear words, of her own soul stripped of its self-deception. At last, with a faint movement, she turned towards him. "'Take me home,' she said in a numbed voice. "'I wish to go home.' At the words he wheeled round in sudden protest, but as his eyes rested on her cold face a tinge of self-consciousness chilled his zeal. Self-consciousness and the suddenly remembered fact that his own action was— after all unjustifiable his own figure suddenly stiffened as you wish of course he said quietly i suppose my conduct seems quite unpardonable for one fleeting second an impulse a desire crossed clodagh's face but as it trembled on the brink of utterance gore leaned forward in his seat and gave a quick imperative order to the gondolier a moment later they had glided up a narrow waterway and emerged again upon the great canal from the door and windows of clodagh's hotel a stream of light was still pouring out upon the water as they drew level with the terrace she turned her face away from this searching radiance and rose quickly to her feet good night she said in an almost inarticulate voice good night don't stir don't help me but gore had risen also and in a sudden return of his earlier more impulsive manner he forgot the self-consciousness that had chilled him mrs milbanke he said quickly but clodagh evaded his eyes and with a sharp nervous movement shook her head no she said no don't help me i don't want any help stepping past him with an agile movement she ran up the steps and across the terrace to the door of the hotel obeying a dominant impulse gore turned to follow her but as his foot touched the side of the boat he paused drew slowly back and dropped into his former seat. With almost breathless haste Clodagh ran up the silent staircase of the hotel and entering her own room turned on the light. Then, walking straight to the dressing-table, she paused and stared into the mirror at her own reflection. The sight of that reflection was not reassuring. Her face looked colorless as only olive-tinted skin can look, her wide eyes with their narrowed pupils seemed almost yellow in their intense clearness, while her whole air, her whole appearance, was frightened, tired, pained. As she looked a nervous panic seized her and she turned her gaze away. With freedom to look elsewhere her eyes roved over the dressing table and suddenly fixed themselves upon a large square envelope bearing her name which stood propped against the scent bottle. In nervous haste she picked it up, and looked at it uncomprehendingly. It was unusually large and thick, and addressed in an unfamiliar hand. With the same unstrung haste she turned it about between her fingers, halting with new apprehension, as she saw that its flap bore an elaborate black coronet and monogram. At last, with a strange sense of apprehension, she tore the envelope open. Circe, the letter began, I will not reproach you for deserting me, life is too brief for reproaches when one longs to fill it with pleasanter things but be kind to me give me the opportunity of finishing that broken sentence i shall smoke a cigar on the terrace at eleven to-night if you are generous wrap yourself up and keep me company for ten minutes i shall wait and hope Dearhurst. she read it to the end and stood for a space staring at the large, straggling writing. At last, if suddenly imbued with the power of action, she tore the letter across, tearing and re-tearing it into little strips. Then, throwing the fragments on the ground, she turned and fled out of the room. Millbank's bedroom was on the same floor as her own, though separated from it by half the length of the corridor. Leaving her own apartment, she hurried towards it, and pausing outside the door knocked softly and insistently a delay followed her imperative summons then milbanke's voice came faint and nervous demanding the intruder's name she answered and a moment later the door was opened with a confused sound of shooting bolts milbanke's appearance was slightly grotesque as the open door disclosed him silhouetted against the lighted room he was garbed in a loose dressing-gown his scanty hair was disarranged and there was an expression of alarm on his puckered face but for once clodagh was blind to these things with a swift movement she entered the room and closing the door stood leaning against it james she said breathlessly you finished your business with mr barnard to-day didn't you milbanke suddenly conscious of her white face began to stammer clodagh my dear my dear but clodagh waved his anxiety aside tell me she said it's finished isn't it yes yes but my dear she threw out her hands in a sudden vehement gesture then take me away she cried take me away let us go in the morning by the very first train before any one is up milbanke paled but my dear he said helplessly i thought-i believed clodagh turned to him again so did i she cried so did i i thought i loved it i thought i loved it all the music and the gaiety and the people but i don't i hate it i hate it i hate it in a strangled sob her voice gave way and with it her strength and her self-control she took a few steps forward then like a mechanical figure in which the mechanism has suddenly been suspended she stopped swayed a little and dropping into the nearest chair broke into a flood of tears such tears as had shaken her four years ago when she drove out of carrigmore on the day of her wedding End of part three, recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's dot com.